in, yes, in 1948-49, you published an article called The Ascription of Responsibility and Rights. That's right. Which you... My first philosophical article. Which you later disowned. Yes. Could, could you tell me well, a little about... Well, I think there were some things that are quite useful and true in it, but I think it was a central mistake. I claim that the statements of a person has done an action is not a description, but is an ascription. Uh, it's, a, it's a way of saying it's your responsibility, and I think it's wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was your first publication. How, how was it received? Oh, very well. In fact, it got me my, my, my chair here, I think. It was thought extremely well by Ross, the Aristotelian, because on passant, I gave an account of uh, Aristotle's account, uh, notion of the voluntary mm-hmm. as not being a single idea, but a, a, a com- an organisation of different ideas. And he thought this was absolutely right. And he wrote tremendously favourably, I'm told, the electors. Right. Uh, and, of course, I gather the paper itself derived from the seminar that you were doing with Austin. Is, is that correct? Not direct. Yes, 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 certainly. And then in the period after 49, or we, on, in 49 we get Ryle's The Concept of Mind, 1951 we get the collection of essays, logic and language that you contribute to. Yes. Uh, we get Brian King's work in the Cambridge Law Journal, so, so we're beginning to see, it seems to me, the linguistic term, the, the concern yes, with law and language in philosophy. Yeah. Um, then in 1952 we get Hare's book, The Language of Morals, Yes. Uh, and in 52, Goodhart retires as Professor of Jurisprudence. Yes. Um, you published the one article, and what, what all the books on, almost all the, the commentaries on you say, in, in, in a tone of surprise, is, is there you are with, with, with one. the one paper. That's right. How, how did you experience that? Did I it, was persuaded to apply by George Paul here. Um, and uh, I thought they'd never let me. But then they sent um, uh, for the opinion not only of Professor Lawson, but for the head of the chambers, who was very distinguished, as I had been in. And they must have written flaming testimonials, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my competitor was Norman Marsh from here. Ah, oh, yes. Who was, um, did specialised in jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. And he didn't get it, and I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who, who was this distinguished head of your chambers? You? Wilfred Hunt. Aha. Were other people surprised? They were polite enough not to exchange, I think. Yes. I don't know. I knocked about with a large number of lawyers here out of interest as I'd been in law. And they were very pleased that somebody who had eight years' experience practiced. Nobody here had anything like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that modified whatever yes. hostility there might have been. Right. I wonder if, if you could tell me something about your, your impressions of legal studies at Oxford in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, this is the world of, of, of Arthur Goodhart, C.K. Allen... Cheshire. I can only tell you really about jurisprudence, which I thought was in a very bad way. Yes. It had no broad 
principles, no broad confronted no large scale questions. Typical of the period, though I owed a lot to Goodhart in many ways and don't want to decry him, the jurisprudence in his hands, well, he produced three cases on possession. And that seemed to me, it was not very largely confined to a study of the sources of law, precedent, statute, and so on, possession, ownership, and there were no large-scale uh, inquiries into the philosophical dimensions of law or, or legal study, and I thought it was uh, boring and had shut its eyes to a lot of interesting things, which my, uh, both my legal experience and my time as a philosopher John, had, I think, made me alert it. Why do you think that Goodhart and Oxford legal philosophy mm. had taken that particular... There was no legal philosophy. Jurisprudence was, had become a kind of closed subject in which you ask these questions, and very few people have ever thought of revising it. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, I mean, you could look back to Pollock and find something there. Mm -hmm. what, what was Goodhart like? Oh, he was... Um, very, he was the editor, and really, um, I think part founder of the Law Quarterly Review. He was marvellously good at persuading judges that academic law was important, and that law, uh, and getting them down to come and talk to academic law teachers, and writing notes about developments in the common law, small but accurate and beautifully written. He had great gifts, mm -hmm. that kind. Which was all. It was, wasn't my style. Mm -hmm. yes. Somebody once described him to me as more English than the English. And, oh, well, and, and that is, he felt like many Americans. He became something of an English conservative upper class. He, he was rich, of course. Did you encounter people like C.K. Allen oh, and yes. Cheshire? C.K. Allen was my predecessor. Mm. And um, No, no. Uh, he'd been a predecessor so before Mm. And he was here uh, as, a, as a fellow. And um, when we were walking the Roach House, I saw a lot of him. Yes. Well, that book, Law in the Making, uh, is rather in a tradition of Maine, beautifully written, no footnotes, very good histor historical, concrete historical study mm -hmm. of, of, of law, and done with a, a certain originality. I think I knew it. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't up the street more philosophical street that I was trying to work on. Right. And then Cheshire would represent a very different lawyer's law tradition, presumably. Yes, I, came in, I knew him, but made no contact. I knew no, knew no private international law. Mm -hmm. But I knew very little law. So, in terms of his work on contract or property, or... or no. Or, or, because certainly in the discussions I've had with people, Cheshire appears to be held as viewed as one of, one of the great legal gods of the, yes, the 40s and 50s. Yes, but I, I didn't know, know enough to hold him or not to hold him as a god. I read his, uh, his book on property, mm -hmm. found it lucid, but I felt I knew all that from convincing. Mm -hmm. did, did you have any sense of what the provincial university law departments were like? Or, no. Uh, no. Not at which period do you mean? Uh, this is in the 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. I made no contact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in 1952, you publish an article called Philosophy of Law and Jurisprudence in Britain, which I think is a very interesting piece. It's, it's, it's the 
the International Quarterly. That's right. In the or the American Journal of Comparative Law, yes. Um, where you talk about the the way in which jurisprudence in England has been analytical yep. and tradi traditionally. Yeah. That that philosophy of law it's like Andy calls. Um, are you comfortable? Yes. If you like more light, put that near you. Thanks very much. I think that's gonna be fine. Um, you you talk about philosophy of law being a foreign term yes. in in England, that yeah. most judges are not law graduates. Yes. And what one of the most interesting things I, I thought about the paper was the way in which you, you say that analytical jurisprudence dominates, at least the law schools, that there's been some important recent work by people like Wolfgang Friedman and Julius Stone, mm. uh, which might displace analytical philosophy, but in your uh, view, it probably wouldn't do. Mm. And indeed, part of the article I read as, as a defence of analytical philosophy, as you understand it, that, that actually analytical philosophy is, yes. is better. You'll find this more uh, better done in the thing I wrote in the Pennsylvania Review uh, against um, Bodenheim. Mm -hmm. Yes. You'll find the same. Yes, in 1957, yes. yes. So at that period of time, what, what was your view of subjects like sociological jurisprudence? Um, you saw... I was, Sunlights. I was terribly mistrustful of sociology in general. Mm. That's an Oxford disease to be excessively distrustful. I, yes. I had it. And I've applied to articles of enormous length and so on, got very little out of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't want, I would have thought there were interesting questions which could have been developed, but I didn't see much of it. What were the things that you ploughed through? Can you, can you recall? Well, I suppose stones, probably. Mm -hmm. Yes. And pound. I got to know pound at home. Mm -hmm. And you read their work, but really couldn't... Yeah, I didn't find it. It wasn't simulated. It seemed to me they were ruined by the enormous physics their legs. Could you say just a little more about this, this, this Oxford anti-sociological... Well, there's no chair of sociology here. I've never been a professor. Um, um, there's a socio-legal department now. Which is right, I think I had that. But um, 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 and there's obviously a place for empirical studies about every kind. But. Um, I think Oxford, with a predominant philosophical tradition, better um, emphasising what it did emphasise, and leaving it free to people uh, to branch out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'd like to come back to the relationship between law, legal philosophy mm -hmm. and, and sociology a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. um, in 1953 we get your inaugural lecture, Definition and Theory mm -hmm. in Jurisprudence. Um, that's which has had a great deal of influence. Would, would, you, would, you, would you like to say anything about that lecture and how that lecture came about? It came about. In terms of picking that particular subject matter and that particular theme? Well, 
part, largely through Austin, and we devoted term after term to studying rules and the concept of, of a rule in the Saturday morning mm -hmm. meetings. Mm -hmm. And we used to look at every kind of rule, rules of games, rules of, rules of golf, rules of um, uh, moral rules, legal rules. Um, and um, I thought there's a lot of model, say, about the notion of a, of a corporation, whether it was a fictitious entry, real entry, was not seeing that what was at stake was the specific use of language in the application of rules of various sorts. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was a thing worth looking into, and I explained it in the book clear about various models. Mm -hmm. what, 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 what was your sense of the, the reaction to it? Um, did it persuade people that they really should take the new analytical philosophy yeah, seriously? Well, it made it more law? acceptable, mm -hmm. and certainly more philosophers turned their attention to the law and began to write articles which um, dealt with the law in some informed fashion, which had never happened before. Then. And um, um, I held a weekly class, um, like Austin's, for people who are interested in jurisprudence and dance. Mm -hmm. And certainly we discussed things. Rupert Cross was one, uh, Woosley was there, um, and uh, they, that's a lawyer and a philosopher, and Tony Honoray, uh, and a lot of um, the more interested lawyers. Mm -hmm. And this was a weekly uh, afternoon. And there we discussed a lot. Mm -hmm. And this was in the period, this was the early 50s, mid 50s? Yes, that's right. Uh, and how long did this, this the seminar continue? Was mm -hmm. this a, a, it went on as long as I was professor, professor. Mm -hmm. and then Brooklyn took it over. Took it, uh, and on a rather larger scale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Moving on then from your inaugural, in 1955 we get your paper, Are There Any Natural Rights? Mm -hmm. is, is there anything you'd like to say about that? Ah, well, I think in many ways that there were some interesting and correct things in it. I doubt whether its main point uh, is successful. How, what, what, what would you say was your main point in that essay? Um, I tried to prove um, that if there are any moral rights at all, there is at least one natural right, um, uh, namely the equal right to freedom. And I don't think that really works. Mm -hmm. what, why not? I find it too complex to rehearse yes. the argument. Yes. I could do 